your sermon outline. We're in Jeremiah 37 and 38 today. Uh, before we get there, uh, welcome home to the Kaminskys. We're glad to see you, and that's uh, wonderful. Uh, we have a guest with us, uh, with the Garniers. Uh, Bill is a minister who works on the Appalachian Trail, and he goes by Circuit Rider. You may have seen him mentioned in some of uh, Stephen Sue's um, postings about their uh, amazing adventure. Um, Bill uh, ministers to those hikers uh, uh, on the uh, Appalachian Trail, many, many of whom need the Lord. So we want to pray for him. He has a website, and uh, you can get all that information from him. Please welcome him, and uh, let's uh, make sure that we uh, pray for him. And that's sort of how he met Stephen Sue, so you know he's got his work cut out for him. So the, uh, we are uh, delighted that there's somebody ministering the gospel on the Appalachian Trail. That's wonderful. Thank you. Sarah, I understand you have some news. You do? Oh, so congratulations are in order, I think. <laughs> so we will be praying for all of you, probably for mom and dad too. So been through this a few times. The uh, so exciting. That's great. Well, if now let's turn to Jeremiah chapter thirty-seven. We're actually going to go through thirty-seven and thirty-eight. It's a lot of verses, so we'll cover it as we go through it today, and um, it is very similar to much of Jeremiah and in some ways very different, and so hopefully you'll pick up on that as we go through it, and, um, but before we do, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word. As always, we need it. We need to know that everything we need for faith and everything we need to free us from our fears comes from the mouth of the Lord. We need to know that when your word is open before us, it's the word of the Lord. And thank you that Jeremiah builds our faith and calms our hearts because it's built on the word of the Lord coming to Jeremiah and through him to us. Help us to hear it, understand it, believe it, and obey it. And so we pray, speak to us through your word this morning. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. When you hear someone use the word traitor, who's the first person you think of? Most Americans think of Benedict Arnold, although they know virtually nothing about him. And yet Benedict Arnold was the most famous traitor in the history of the United States. Like many traitors, uh, he began as a patriot. He joined the Revolutionary Army as a colonel in 1775 and led several successful military campaigns. He helped Ethan Allen and the Green Mountain Boys capture Fort Ticonderoga. And unless you love furniture, are from Vermont, or have studied military history, you likely have no idea who Ethan Allen and the Green Mountain Boys are. However, they won the Battle of Fort Ticonderoga, and that's considered one of the great victories of the Revolutionary War. And that battle turned Benedict Arnold into one of General George Washington's most trusted officers. Twice Benedict Arnold was wounded in battle and acclaimed a hero. 
And despite attaining the rank of major general, he failed to win another promotion which he thought he deserved. And to make matters worse, he was then accused of personal misconduct, taking advantage of his rank. And though he was largely cleared by a court-martial, he did receive a formal rebuke from General Washington, and so now any promotion was out of the question. And because of all of that, Benedict Arnold became incredibly bitter and angry about the way he'd been treated, and so he began plotting his revenge. And after a year and a half of secret correspondence with the British, he found a way to betray his country. He would hand over the fortress at West Point, now the home of the military academy, it was then under his command, and he was planning to hand it over to the British Army. But some of his letters were intercepted, and the conspiracy was uncovered, and Benedict Arnold fled to the British. Though he was never brought to trial for being a traitor, his name was disgraced forever. And since in wartime, treason carries the death penalty, some thought Benedict Arnold got better than he deserved. But nonetheless, his life came to a poor end. The British Army gave him less than a third of the salary they promised him. And after he moved to London, he was scorned by English high society and absolutely despised by the British Army. Military people don't like traitors in any army. And at the end of his life, Benedict Arnold was distrusted, in debt, and deeply discouraged. He died forsaken by the Americans and forgotten by the British. And our passage today contains Benedict Arnold-like accusations because Jeremiah is accused of treason. During a brief pause in the war that's going on around them in Jerusalem, the prophet tries to slip out of Jerusalem unnoticed, but he's captured, arrested, beaten, and imprisoned. And that's what brings us to our text for today. So first we'll start with chapter 37, verse 1, and we see the prophet rejected. The prophet rejected. That should be the first blank there in your outline. I'm not going to go straight through the verses in order because there's lots of overlap. But let's start here at the beginning of 37. Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah, reigned instead of Koinia, the son of Jehoiakim. But neither he nor his servants nor the uh, people of the land listened to the words of the Lord that he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. King Zedekiah sent Jehuchal, the son of Shulamiah, and Zephaniah the priest, the son of Maaseah, to Jeremiah the prophet, saying, Please pray for us to the Lord our God. Now Jeremiah was still going in and out among the people, for he had not yet been put in prison. The army of Pharaoh had come out of Egypt. And when the Chaldeans, who were besieging Jerusalem, heard news about him, they withdrew from Jerusalem. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet. Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, Thus shall you say to the king of Judah, who sent you to me to inquire of me, Behold, Pharaoh's army that came to help you is about to return to Egypt, to its own land, and the Chaldeans shall come back and fight against the city. They shall capture it and burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, do not deceive yourselves, saying, The Chaldeans will surely go away from us, for they will not go away. 
For even if you should defeat the whole army of Chaldeans who are fighting against you, and there remained of them only wounded men, every man in his tent, they would rise up and burn this city with fire. I told someone earlier that Jeremiah, much of this a book is the people are bad and God's mad and Jeremiah's sad. And this is no exception. See, the real traitor here is not actually Jeremiah. It's actually King Zedekiah. Zedekiah pretended to be true to God's people, but everything about him is false. He's not even the rightful king. Verse 1 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar put him on the throne. And he did that because Zedekiah was willing to submit to him. Later on, Zedekiah betrays his Babylonian overlords by switching his allegiance to Egypt, which is why they attacked Jerusalem. Zedekiah displays all the characteristics of a traitor, not just politically, but also spiritually. Look at the text. First, he doesn't listen to God's word. Verse 2, neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord that he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. The Bible records pages and pages of Jeremiah's prophecies. Zedekiah ignores them all. So do the people, and the kingdom reflects the spiritual apathy of its king. And if Zedekiah is not going to listen to God's word, then nobody else is either. And so the whole nation lives in ignorance of God's will. The second thing Zedekiah apparently is unable to do or refuse to do is pray. He has no personal relationship with the living God. He can't speak to God about his troubles. And although he doesn't pray himself, he almost believes in the power of prayer because every time he's in a jam, he wants to cover his bases. So he asks other people to pray. In this case, uh, he asks Jeremiah. So he doesn't even ask him himself. He sends somebody to ask him. Verse 3, King Zedekiah sent Jehuchal to Jeremiah the prophet saying, please pray for us to the Lord our God. It's a little ironic. After all the times Jeremiah has been ignored and mistreated, essentially the king asked him for a favor. He asked him to pray. But if you think about it, this happens all the time. This is actually part of regular life. You know that man who mocks Christianity will say, pray for me when he's facing hardship. Or that neighbor who will never come to church ask for prayer during a family crisis. You can visit any unbeliever in the hospital. They're happy to have you pray for them. We have to understand that, one hand, the inability to pray for yourself is a sign of desperate spiritual weakness. And yet those who do pray shouldn't look down on those who don't. We should actually offer to pray for them more, as often as possible. When a colleague's under stress, mention that you're praying for him. <coughs> when your neighbor, neighbor's in trouble, ask if you can pray with her. If a family member calls in the middle of a crisis, tell them that you're praying for them. My experience is most unbelievers still find comfort in prayer, even if somebody else is doing the praying. And that's because prayer is a spiritual activity. It opens a door for the Holy Spirit to work in that person's life. They don't have to agree with you. They don't have to believe what you believe. But most people are very open to being prayed for. 
Here, Zedekiah is asking for prayer primarily so the Babylonians won't kill him. He's trying to be saved uh, from them. He's hoping for the best. They've just had this sort of unexpected victory due to no, uh, 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 I was going to say no fault of their own, but no uh, initiative of their own. They hear that Egypt is coming, and so they withdraw to face the Egyptians. Well, then the Egyptians turn and go back. And so we have this in verse 5, that suddenly the Babylonians have been besieging Jerusalem for months, <coughs> and then suddenly the army of Pharaoh had come out of Egypt, and so they withdraw from Jerusalem, verse 5. The siege is lifted, Jerusalem breathes this huge sigh of relief, but it's a false sense of security. You see, by this time, Babylon is the world power. They have already decisively defeated Egypt once. There is no way Egypt is going to stand up to them. And uh, it seems that since uh, the Babylonians withdrew to face Egypt, one of the next things we'll see is that Egypt turns around and goes home. So it, it seems as if they were hoping to sneak up on them, some sort of surprise attack or flank attack, but the Babylonians are too good. They redeploy. Egypt goes home. Meanwhile, in Jerusalem, the people are seeing the Babylonians sort of withdraw. They're not sure what's going on. They think, God's working it out after all. Jerusalem's not going to fall. Egypt's going to push back. We were right to switch sides. Remember, all along, Jeremiah's been telling the people, don't fight Babylon. They're going to win. The only way to survive is to submit to Babylon. However, Zedekiah and his advisors are like, oh no. A hundred years ago, under King Hezekiah, we got surrounded by the Assyrians and the Egyptians attacked and the Assyrians left and we survived. It's happening all over again. This is great. But it's only temporary. So God sends Jeremiah back with a message, verses 6 through 10, that the Babylonians are coming back to finish the job. And even it says if you defeat them and take them down to just a few wounded men, they're still going to come and burn this city with fire. God promised defeat, and defeat it's going to be. And the point is that God intends to punish the people of Judah for their sins. And Zedekiah refuses to believe them. Now, that's the setting for these chapters here. And you don't really understand this conversation that's about to happen between Zedekiah and Jeremiah if you don't understand the setting. Zedekiah is the last king of Judah. He's in the last year of his life, but he doesn't know it. And at this point, he's a young man. He's about 32 years old. Jeremiah, for his part, is in his early 60s. And he's been preaching now for almost 40 years. That's the length of time from Jeremiah 1 to here uh, that we have. Jeremiah reminds me of the ancient Greek uh, goddess Cassandra in Greek mythology, if any of you ever studied that or remember that. Cassandra is the goddess who always told the truth, and nobody ever, ever believed her. And it's a little bit like Jeremiah, because he always tells the truth. You have a word from the Lord. Yes, you need to repent, or God's going to show up. It'll be bad. Oh, no, that couldn't possibly happen. We have 36 chapters of that. 
He always tells the truth, and he is never, ever believed. But not only is Jeremiah's word rejected, Jeremiah himself gets rejected. And so we see the prophet persecuted. And we start to have two tracks here, one in 37 and one in 38. There's two incidents that happen. Some people think it's the same incident. I think it's two incidents. Uh, but I'm going to put them together so you can see the persecution that comes against Jeremiah. So starting in 37, it says now, uh, verse 11, Now when the Chaldean army had withdrawn from Jerusalem at the approach of Pharaoh's army, Jeremiah set out from Jerusalem to go to the land of Benjamin to receive his portion there among the people. When he was at the Benjamin gate, a sentry there named Erijah, the son of Shilamiah, son of Hananiah, seized Jeremiah the prophet, saying, you are deserting to the Chaldeans. This is a serious charge in wartime. And Jeremiah said, it is a lie. I'm not deserting to the Chaldeans. But Elijah would not listen to him and seized Jeremiah and brought him to the officials. And the officials were enraged at Jeremiah and they beat him and imprisoned him in the house of Jonathan, the secretary, for it had been made a prison. And jumping to chapter 38, verse 1. Now Shephatiah, the son of Matan, Gedaliah, the son of Pashur, Jukal, the son of Shilamiah, and Pashur, the son of Malchiah, heard the words that Jeremiah was saying to all the people. Thus says the Lord, he who stays in the city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence, but he who goes out to the Chaldeans shall live. He shall have his life as a prize of war and live. Thus says the Lord, this city shall surely be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon and be taken. Then the official said to the king, let this man, talking about Jeremiah, let this man be put to death, for he is weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in the city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. King Zedekiah said, behold, he is in your hands. For the king can do nothing against you. Probably the wimpiest words of any king ever. That part's not in the text. Verse 6, so they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by ropes. And there was no water in the cistern, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank in the mud. So we have this continuous account of two arrests, two accusations, two imprisonments, and two secret conversations with King Zedekiah. The Babylonian withdrawal gave people the opportunity to leave the city, and Jeremiah takes it, intending to settle some business with his family's land. But on the way, he gets arrested. And the assumption of the soldier who arrests him in verse 13, it's not unreasonable. He thinks Jeremiah is simply doing what he's told everybody else to do, to go over to the Babylonians. And the officials decide this gives them enough cause to have him arrested and charged with treason, demoralizing the troops and demoralizing the people of the city. And the king gives in to their demand in a way that shows just how weak he is. He says, behold, he is in your hands, for the king can do nothing against you. That's not a common phrase of kings. But now the officials ask in verse 4, let this man be put to death. But notice, they're not willing to have blood on their own hands. 
So in this eerie reenactment of what Joseph's brothers did to Joseph in Genesis 37, they put him in an old well, a place where he's bound to die. But they could deny any guilt and say that they didn't kill him. So verse 6, they let Jeremiah down by ropes into a cistern. And we're told that this incident closes with, and Jeremiah sank into the mud. Now, I don't know if you've ever looked into a really old well. Mud is too polite a term for the stinky, slimy ooze that would have settled at the bottom of an urban cistern. So even if he doesn't go completely under, it's impossible to lie down and sleep. And without food and water, he faces the horror of a slow death in the darkness by starvation, dehydration, or drowning. What now? Drowning in the mud. And you have to imagine, as Jeremiah is at the bottom of this cistern, what of all of God's promises? What of all of Jeremiah's prayers? How have we gotten to this point where Jeremiah, faithful to God's word, is going to die in this horrible way? How do we see the prophet delivered? How do we see the prophet delivered? Look at 38, starting at verse 7. When Abed-Melech the Ethiopian, a eunuch who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the cistern, the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate. Abed-Melech went from the king's house and said to the king, My lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they did to Jeremiah the prophet by casting him into the cistern, and he will die there of hunger, for there is no bread left in the city. Then the king commanded Abed-Melech the Ethiopian, Take thirty men with you from here and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. So Abed-Melech took the men with him and went to the house of the king to a wardrobe in the storehouse and took from there old rags and worn-out clothes, which he let down to Jeremiah in the cistern by ropes. Then Abed-Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, Put the rags and clothes between your armpits and the ropes. Jeremiah did so. Then they drew Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the cistern. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. You have to sort of put yourself in Jeremiah's situation. What was he wondering? He's now down in the bottom of this well. We don't know how big it is. We don't know exactly what it looks like. Some cisterns look like wells as we know them. Some were these like big, uh, long pits, and they were for the gathering of water. Um, and, of course, it's all been cut off because the city's under siege. And so he's down here in this pit, it's not a metaphor for Jeremiah, although the psalmists have used this metaphor over and over again, but this is literal real life for Jeremiah. I mean, the psalms often talk about going down or being lifted out of a pit. Psalm 28, 30, 40, 88, all mention it. Maybe he prayed according to Psalm 69, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Could you blame him if he prayed like that? 
You know, whether he prayed like that or not, God remembered his promise to him from the very beginning in Jeremiah 1. He said, I am with you to deliver you. And God's deliverance comes from an unexpected source, from someone in the palace itself. Enter Abed-Melech the Ethiopian. This man who's essentially nameless, since Abed-Melech simply means a servant of the king. And he joins this company, a biblical company of people who have rescued God's servants. Remember the widow of Zarephath saved Elijah's life. Or Joseph's cupbearer friend who remembered Joseph and had him saved from prison. Or Moses' sister Miriam. Or even David's friend Jonathan. There's a number of sort of secondary characters in the Bible that come to the rescue of God's servants. Abed-Melech is another one, and he's remarkable in several ways. He has this righteous indignation at what the other officials had done. It's not the first time that uh, an outsider gives a lesson in justice to insiders who should have known better. For his courage in approaching the king in a public place, he makes an appeal on behalf of the prophet, who everybody knows is public enemy number one. For his resourcefulness in rescuing Jeremiah, which would incur the wrath of those who threw him in the cistern in the first place. And he gets him out of the well in the same manner that he was lowered into it. Although we have this thoughtful touch. And I love when Scripture adds a few details in there. It says he got some old rags and worn out clothes, you know, for cushioning as they pulled him up. You know, that's unnecessary to the story. But Scripture often adds details their kind of thing that would be like an eyewitness account. Perhaps after his rescue, Jeremiah recalled Psalm 40, which we read as our responsive reading this morning. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, the song of praise to our God, Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Maybe he said that. We don't know, but it would certainly fit. But if you think about people who've been hurt, or they've been betrayed, or perhaps even persecuted, one of the things that's pretty remarkable about this passage is we don't see Jeremiah get angry, we don't see him get bitter. And we don't see him get resentful. We do, however, see the prophet afraid. We see the prophet afraid. We see it at the end of 37 and at the end of 38. I'm going to read these quickly. When Jeremiah had come to the dungeon cells and remained there many days, King Zedekiah sent for him and received him. The king questioned him secretly in his house and said, Is there any word from the Lord? Jeremiah said, There is. You're going to be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. Probably not the answer Zedekiah was looking for. Jeremiah, verse 18, also said to King Zedekiah, What wrong have I done to you or your servants or this people that you've put me in prison? Where are your prophets who prophesied to you, saying, The king of Babylon will not come against you and against this land? Now here, please, O my lord the king, let my humble plea come before you, and do not send me back to the house of Jonathan, the secretary, lest I die there. So King Zedekiah gave orders, and they committed Jeremiah to the court of the guard, and a loaf of bread was given him daily from the Baker Street 
until all the bread of the city was gone. So Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. So that happens at the end of 37. But then he tries to go out to do his business, and he gets captured and arrested and uh, thrown in the well, rescued from the well. And now we're at the end of 38. This is the second time King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah the prophet and received him at the third entrance of the temple of the Lord. The king said to Jeremiah, I will ask you a question. Hide nothing from me. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, if I tell you, will you not surely put me to death? If I give you counsel, you will not listen to me. Then King Zedekiah swore secretly to Jeremiah, as the Lord lives who made our souls, I will not put you to death or deliver you into the hand of these men who seek your life. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, if you will surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then your life shall be spared and the city shall not be burned with fire and you and your house shall live. But if you do not surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then this city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans, and they shall burn it with fire, and you shall not escape from their hand. This is the exact same message he's been giving chapter after chapter after chapter. Verse 19, King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Judeans who have deserted to the Chaldeans, lest I be handed over to them and they deal cruelly with me. Jeremiah said, You shall not be given to them. Obey now the voice of the Lord and what I say to you, and it shall be well with you, and your life shall be spared. But if you refuse to surrender, this is the vision which the Lord has shown to me. And so now he's going to relay a vision that God has given him. And it's really important that you sort of imagine, picture this in your mind. Starting verse 22. Behold, all the women left in the house of the king of Judah. This is essentially the harem were being led out to the officials of the king of Babylon, and they were saying, this is what they're saying to Zedekiah, your trusted friends have deceived you and prevailed against you. Now that your feet are sunk in the mud, they will turn away from you. All your wives and your sons shall be led out to the Chaldeans, and you yourself shall not escape from their hand, but shall be seized by the king of Babylon, and this city shall be burned with fire. Then Zedekiah, continue the conversation, verse 24. Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, let no one know of these words, and you shall not die. If the officials hear that I have spoken with you and come to you and say to you, tell us what you said to the king and what the king said to you, hide nothing from us and we will not put you to death, then you shall say to them, I made a humble plea to the king that he would not send me back to the house of Jonathan to die there. That's true, but that's only about a third of the story. So he basically says, don't tell them about all the other stuff that I said. Then all the officials came to Jeremiah and asked him, and he answered them as the king had instructed him. So they stopped speaking with him, for the conversation had not been overheard. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard until the day Jerusalem was taken. So again, as I said, we have in this account two conversations between Jeremiah and Zedekiah. Jeremiah is twice taken from the prison to the palace. In the first incident, in chapter 37, he speaks as Jeremiah the human being. He's got some rhetorical questions and a request. The first one's a plea of innocence, which makes his imprisonment illegal and unjust. And the second is a plea for vindication. 
He said, if I'm the only prophet whose predictions are coming true, why, are my, why am I being treated this way? And then he makes a request where he is, this is the humble plea. Don't send me back to Jonathan's house lest I die there. The second incident in 38 is a much more intense dialogue. These are his last words to the king before the fall of the city. He's still a prisoner. He's still aware of the possibility of execution at any time. Obviously, Zedekiah is all over the map. There's no consistency to this guy whatsoever. He could be thrown back into that slimy darkness of the pit. And yet he speaks clearly. And he's still seeking the best interests of the king and of the people. Look at 38 verse 15. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, If I tell you, will you not surely put me to death? And if I give you counsel, you will not listen to me? Essentially, up front, he asks the king if he can be trusted. Why bother speaking truth to power if it gets you killed and the power won't listen anyways? These are courageous words. And you can only presume that he's at a point where he's got nothing left to lose. They can't do much more to him uh, over than what they've already done to him except finally kill him, which is clearly what he expects. On the other hand, you have this terribly indecisive figure in King Zedekiah. He knows Jeremiah is the one who brings the Lord. He had uh, words of the Lord, and he admits that, but he does it all in secret. So nobody else knows that he actually believes that. He knows Jeremiah is the real prophet. And so you see him sort of swing between protecting Jeremiah and prophet and then throwing him to the wolves in public. And he's given his last chance to save the people and save the city. And he fails once again. And the prophecy's vivid. It's almost mocking. Jeremiah portrays this royal harem taunting the king as they're being carted off as prisoners. In verses 21, it says, Behold, all the women, of 22, all the women left in the house of the king of Judah are being led out to the officials of the king of Babylon. And we're saying, you can almost picture they're all captured. They're all put together. Maybe they're, you know, in carts or they're chained or something. And they're taunting Jeremiah as they're led, or Zedekiah as they're led out of the city. And they're saying, your trusted friends have deceived you and prevailed against you. And now your feet are sunk in the mud and they turn away from you. Zedekiah, who let Jeremiah get thrown into the muddy cistern, is now being mocked that his feet will be the ones stuck in the mud. And yet our passage, it concludes on a sad note. Because in the end, Zedekiah silences Jeremiah, verse 30, or 24. Let no one know of these words, and you shall not die. He commands Jeremiah to tell only part of the truth when he gets questioned, whether it's out of fear or weariness or suffering, we don't know, but Jeremiah gives in. Verse 27. Then all the officials came to Jeremiah and asked him, and he answered them as the king had instructed him. We have chapter after chapter of bold prophecies pouring forth from Jeremiah, words of warning about divine judgment and the wrath of God against sin. He's rebuked him in the city. He opposed him in the temple. He braved their beatings. He defied their dungeons. Through it all, he kept preaching God's word without compromise. 
in keeping with God's promise. He had always been, uh, Jeremiah 1.18, a fortified city, an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. But now the walls start to crumble. The pillars start to crack. And Jeremiah's fears get the best of him. And Jeremiah has finally had enough. And that's how the chapter ends. Jeremiah's fear is a reminder of his humanity. He's a hero of the faith, but he's not a superhero. And like any other believer, Jeremiah has times of doubt, fear, weakness, even sin. And in his sin, he's no better than Zedekiah who acted on his fears. On this occasion, Jeremiah does the exact same thing. God delivers him from death But now, out of fear, he tries to save himself by giving in to the king. It's dangerous to think that any one of us has ever mastered sin, any sin. Being faithful to God in the past is no guarantee of faithfulness in the future. And maybe you were bold in sharing your faith when you first became a Christian. Are you as outspoken now as you were then? Perhaps you were more humble uh, three years ago than you are now. I mean, Jeremiah was a great prophet. Any careful study of his ministry places an indelible stamp on a person's life. He's passionate, he's faithful, he's long-suffering, he has a heart for God and a love for God's people, but he ain't perfect. And there's times when his fear overcame him and he was disobedient. And what Jeremiah needs is a savior for his sins. We tend to forget that he was a sinful person too. You know, when people met Jesus, he reminded them of Jeremiah. We have that Matthew 16. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The similarities between Jesus and Jeremiah are striking. Both men had a gift for teaching. Both men have a passion for God's word. Both men have a love for God's people. But by the Spirit of God, Simon Peter spots the key difference. Jesus wasn't as the Christ, the Son of the living God. He wasn't as the Son of Man and Savior of sinners. And because Jesus is the Christ, he himself never sinned. His fears never got the best of him. He lived by faith. He was and is, Hebrews 12, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Even when he was being led to his own crucifixion, he kept trusting his Father in heaven. Jesus lived, died, and rose again so that he could be Jeremiah's Savior. And your Savior. And my Savior. And Savior to all who are far off. To all whom the Lord our God may call. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close.
Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we confess to you that we are people who are quick to fear. But we fear the world, we fear others, we fear loss, we fear betrayal. And those things make us angry and bitter and resentful. And those things ruin our lives. So, Lord, we pray, please forgive us our sins and our anger and our bitterness and our resentment and all of our fears. Teach us how to trust you and to trust your word, to trust that it's greater than our problems, to trust that it speaks to each and every situation of our lives, and to trust that it comes from your hand. Forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for being overwhelmed by our fears. And work in each of us this summer as we live with the prophet Jeremiah, as we see what he sees and as we hear what he hears. Teach us to respond with greater faith and renewed confidence in your word and an ever-increasing trust in your great and precious promises. And through those things, to draw us ever closer to your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Jed, would you do us the honor and come down here and pronounce the benediction over us? May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred, uh, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God bless you.